that we as believers should follow Paul's example and earnestly desire and therefore pray for the salvation of those we love. If we're not praying, then we can't honestly say we desire their salvation. The two go together. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom continues his current series in Romans 9 and 10 with part 5 of Human Responsibility. Because God is inherently righteous, He requires righteousness for all those who will enter His presence. All religions provide two basic options to obtain this necessary righteousness. But one is you could try to establish your own righteousness before God by personal efforts, good works, or religiosity. Good luck with that. Or two, you can receive righteousness as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans 9 and 10, the Apostle Paul explains how faith in Christ is the only legitimate option. Let's join Tom now as he opens God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Every honest person who understands anything about the Bible acknowledges two unchangeable realities. The first of those realities is that God in His eternal person is inherently righteous, and He requires righteousness of all of those who will enter His presence. That is an unchangeable reality. It's presented throughout the Scripture from cover literally to cover. Maybe it's said well and for our purposes best in Psalm 11, verse 7, where the psalmist writes, The Lord is righteous. That is His inherent personal righteousness. And He loves righteousness. That is, He loves righteousness in all of those who would draw near to Him. And then it says this, The upright will behold his face, and the verse before it, verse 6 says, upon the wicked he will rain coals of fire, fire, and brimstone. There are the two options. God is inherently righteous, and he demands that all who approach him be righteous. And for those who are righteous, he receives them, and for those who are not, he sends them into eternal punishment and destruction. That is the message of the Bible. That is an unchangeable reality. Unfortunately, there is a second unchangeable reality that makes our lives extremely complicated. Because the second reality is that there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. So God is inherently righteous, and He demands righteousness of all who will enter His presence but not one of us is righteous in the sight of God. That is the great puzzle of the Bible. That is the great enigma that has to be resolved. Once you understand those two unchangeable realities, you begin to search for a righteousness that will somehow enable you to stand in God's presence. And when you begin that search, you soon discover that there are only two possible options. So when it comes to that 
that irreconcilable set of realities, God is righteous, demands righteousness of those who would enter his presence. We are not. When you seek to solve that, there are only two paths you can try. Only two. All religion is reduced to these two basic attempts or options. One is you can try to establish your own righteousness before God by your personal merit, your good works, and your religious performance. And the world is filled with people who are attempting to do just that. But unfortunately, however sincere, however well-intentioned, that fails miserably. It falls short of the glory of God. Because Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, that all our righteous deeds are like filthy garments in God's sight. Notice he doesn't say all our sins. That goes without saying, right? He says our righteous deeds. Think for a moment about the top ten things that appear righteous you have ever done. In God's sight, they were filthy. That's what the writer says. So that approach will not get you to God. The second possible option, the only other way to try to to bridge that gap between those two great realities, the only other way to try to gain righteousness before God is to receive it from Him as a free gift through faith in Jesus Christ. Those are the only two options. Paul deals with those two diametrically opposed ways of trying to gain a right standing before God here in Romans chapter 10. Now let me remind you of the context. We're studying the third great section of Paul's letter, chapters 9 through 11. Here I've entitled this section, The Gospel Defended, Election, Israel, and God's Promises. He has in the earlier chapters explained the gospel, He has even applied the gospel in chapters 5 through 8. But now in chapters 9 through 11, he is defending that gospel because it could appear, based on the failure of so many of God's people to believe, like the gospel had somehow an inherent deficiency. So Paul answers one great question in these three chapters. Why have so many of God's chosen people, Israel, rejected their Messiah and his gospel. And he gives us three answers to that question. His first answer, we studied at great length, and it is the reality of divine election. That begins in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, and runs down through verse 29. We are now studying Paul's second answer to that question, and it is the reality of human responsibility. This section begins in chapter 9, verse 30, and runs through the end of chapter 10, chapter 10, verse 21. And the point of this section is when people hear but don't believe, that is, believe in Jesus, believe in his gospel, including the Jewish people, they are personally responsible. When people hear the gospel and don't respond, they are personally responsible for that rejection. Now, what are the primary factors that contribute to both the Jewish and, frankly, to other religious people's responsibility for not believing the gospel? 
Last time, we looked at the first of those factors, those primary factors, and that is it's caused by a failure to understand the purpose of God's law. Chapter 9, verses 30 to 33. They just don't get it. They think God's law is about earning their way into God's favor, and that fails miserably. So they have misunderstood that God's law is intended to, Galatians 3, drive us to Christ. And instead, they think it's a way to earn their way into God's favor. Today, we come to a second primary factor that contributes to both Jewish and, frankly, all human responsibility for not believing the gospel once you hear that gospel, and it's this, an unwillingness to accept salvation by faith alone. That is what Paul addresses in chapter 10, verses 1 through 15. We just read it a moment ago. Now, this morning, we're not going to be able to look at all 15 of those verses. My goal is to look at the first four, so let's read them together. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The Jews, Paul says, were unwilling to accept faith alone in Christ alone as the only way to be right with God. And the reason for their refusal was an abysmal ignorance of faith, an abysmal ignorance of the importance of and the reality of faith. And that's what Paul is saying in these first four verses. In this brief paragraph, Paul mentions this this profound ignorance twice. Notice verse 2. Not in accordance with knowledge. Their zeal is not in keeping with knowledge. They don't have sufficient knowledge. And verse 3, not knowing about God's righteousness. Now, the problem is an, an ignorance. An ignorance of the way of faith, the means of faith by which we gain righteousness with God. And Paul begins not with the cause of their ignorance, but with the result of this ignorance of faith in verse 1. Notice verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Paul says they had not experienced spiritual salvation. They were still dead in their sins. And it was this reality that prompted Paul in both his concern and his prayer. By the way, these three chapters are permeated with that concern. You remember how he started chapter 9? Go back to chapter 9, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. He comes back to the same expression of concern in chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? 
May it never be, because I too am an Israelite. And he goes on to talk about his passion for his people. This is exactly how he begins chapter 10. Look at it with me. Chapter 10, verse 1. He begins, brethren. Now, first of all, understand that this is how Paul, with this word, how he often switches from one topic to another, or as he does here, from one part of a topic to another part of the same topic. It's also Paul's familiar way to address his fellow Christians. In this case, the word brethren is not talking about his, his Jewish brethren. Rather, he's talking about his Christian brothers and sisters in the churches in Rome. And he says to them, brethren. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but I want to pause just a moment. Even though this is not Paul's primary point, I think he says this so often, and we become so accustomed to it, that it loses its impact. Folks, there is a powerful reminder here for all of us. Brethren, if you're a Christian, if you claim Christ, look around you in this room. These are not merely fellow spectators at an event that is intended for you and your benefit. No, these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's not just a nice expression. That's a reality. God has adopted them just as he has adopted you. They are part of your family. Jesus said when his mother and brothers showed up outside the house where he was teaching in Capernaum, we saw it over the last couple of weeks, he said as he pointed to his disciples gathered around his feet, these are my mother and my brother and my sisters, those who hear the word of God and obey it. These are your brothers and sisters. If you don't genuinely love them, John the Apostle says, and I'll put it as bluntly as he does, you're not a Christian. You can't love Christ and not love his bride. It's impossible. And if you are a Christian and your life is not truly about loving and serving your Christian brothers and sisters, if you are happy to show up week after week and sit in a seat and get what you can get out of it and then run for the doors, and that's the extent of your involvement, understand this. Again, I'll put it as bluntly as John the Apostle does, you are being a selfish and disobedient Christian. These are your brothers and sisters. And Paul, he thought of other Christians as brothers and sisters, and he treated them that way, even those he had never met, like those in Rome. Do you, do you. So, verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire. The Greek word for desire refers to a wish or a desire that's directed towards something that, that's good, that causes you joy and satisfaction. It was the desire of his heart, that is, of his entire inner self, to see his fellow Jews come to know Christ. He wanted the primarily Gentile churches in Rome to know that he remained passionate about the salvation of his fellow Jews. So passionate, verse 1 says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them Here's how his desire manifested itself, in prayer for them. The word for prayer is, in this case, 
a word specifically for a petition or request. My, my desire and my request for them. You know, here we see the apostle's great heart, his great love. Remember who he's talking about? These were his worst enemies on the planet. Read the book of Acts. Read what he writes even in 2 Corinthians as he details the, the, the persecutions that he faced. They're the ones who were doing this to him, and yet he says for them, in spite of all that, in spite of how badly they treated him, verse 1, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. I like the way J.B. Phillips paraphrases this in his translation slash paraphrase. He says, my brothers, from the bottom of my heart, I long and pray to God that Israel may be saved. What Paul is saying. That notice the focus of his prayer in verse 1 was their spiritual rescue, their salvation. Now, don't miss what this means. Don't miss the big point Paul is making. As a result of their ignorance on this issue, they had not experienced God's salvation. In the words of Ephesians 2, they were still dead in their sins enslaved to the mindset of the age, enslaved to Satan, and even to their own lusts, as Paul says he had been before Christ. And by nature, <coughs> excuse me, again, according to Ephesians 2, instead of being children of God, they were children of Satan, or as Paul puts it there, children of God's wrath. That was their relationship to God all because of this ignorance. So Paul passionately desired and faithfully asked God to save them. You know, there, there are some powerful points of application in verse 1. The first one, and the most important one, is do you understand what Paul is saying is not enough to save you? If you tracked your way through the book of Romans and you listed all of the Jewish advantages and accomplishments, you would learn those things that are never enough to make you right with God. Let me just give you a little list. I'm not going to take you through the book. Let me just give you a list. Here's what's not enough. See how you do on this checklist. They had belief in the one true God. The Jewish people had belief in the one true God. Secondly, they had an initiatory ceremony, in their case, circumcision. A lot, of, a lot of professing Christians put their confidence in a different kind of initiatory ceremony, baptism. They had an attachment to God's people. They had a possession of and a knowledge of the right Scripture. They had a public confession of belonging to the true God. Everybody in their community knew they belonged to the God of Israel. They were regular in their attendance in the corporate worship. Every Sabbath they gathered to worship God. They had an externally righteous life. And they had a fervent, sincere zeal for God and for spiritual things. The Jews could check every one of those boxes, and yet Paul says they still needed to be saved. So, can you check every one of those boxes? 
If that's all you've got, it's not enough. That's what Paul says. It's not enough. If your own confidence is in one or more of those things as your hope of heaven, you are not saved as they were not saved. There's a second application point for us in verse 1, and that is that we as believers should follow Paul's example and earnestly desire and therefore pray for the salvation of those we love. If we're not praying, then we can't honestly say we desire their salvation. The two go together. There's also a crucial theological point that Paul makes in verse 1. And he makes it in passing. It's this. Divine election is not incompatible with evangelistic praying and evangelistic missionary zeal. Now think about this. Paul has just taken an entire chapter, chapter 9, to to explain divine election, and that that is in part why so few Jews have believed in their Messiah. But now, just a couple of verses later, he writes that he desired and prayed for their salvation. And of course, there was never anyone better at acting out on those prayers and bringing the, the gospel to people than the Apostle Paul. You see, divine sovereignty is in reality the only reasonable basis for praying for the salvation of others. In fact, if I can be a little cheeky and say it, every time you ask God to save someone, you are admitting that you are a closet Calvinist. Because what you're really saying is, it's not in their power to do God, it's in your power alone to do. Please save them. Paul didn't see an incompatibility between these at all. And if you don't see that compatibility, if you don't understand the relationship of sovereignty and evangelistic praying and evangelism, then let me encourage you to read a classic by J.I. Packer called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. While we wouldn't agree with him on everything that he later wrote or did, that is a classic book that I commend to you. So the result of an ignorance of faith means no salvation. No salvation. Now next, Paul provides the analysis, that is, of this ignorance of faith. He, he analyzes it for us and lets us see what it really is in verses 2 through 4. Let's look at it together. Verse 2. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. The Greek word for zeal refers to an intense, positive interest in something marked by dedication to get it done. An intense, positive interest marked by dedication. So here, this zeal for God describes an intense devotion to God and all of the things that are important to Him. Such zeal is often praised in the New Testament. In John 2.17 of Jesus, we read this, Zeal for your house will consume me. In Acts 21.20 of Jewish believers, it says thousands of Jews have believed and they are all zealous for God's law.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with Part 5 of his series, Human Responsibility. Tom will have Part 6 for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, Tom, why is it important for us as Christians to pray for the salvation of those in our lives who are lost? You know, it really comes down to this. Praying for the salvation of those who are lost shows that we are convinced that only God can bring salvation to the human heart. And that's really what we're acknowledging. Not only has God sovereignly chosen those whom he will save, uh, that's Romans chapter 9, but he has also determined the means that he will use to accomplish that salvation. And God will not only use his word, but he will use the prayers of his people to bring sinners to salvation. And so we need to imitate Paul in in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, and that is that it is both our desire and our prayer that the people in our lives who are lost would be saved. Thanks, Tom. And Fred, does the Bible speak about the government and structure of the church? In his book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, Tom Pennington presents in-depth evidence from Scripture to show that God intends every local church to be governed by a plurality of godly men. In an age where a biblical ecclesiology is often neglected, it is critical to recapture what the Bible teaches about the structure of the church. Purchase your copy of Tom's book, A Biblical Case for Elder Rule, today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.